The words to which I should like to call your attention this evening are to be found in the Gospel according to St. Matthew in the 24th chapter and the 14th verse. The 14th verse in the 24th chapter of the Gospel according to St. Matthew. And this Gospel of the Kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations. And then shall the end come. And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations. And then shall the end come. We come back once more to this great and uh, what I have described as the key and in many ways the pivotal verse in this important chapter which we are considering together. We are looking at these things because we are living in an age and at a time when the minds of all thinking people are of necessity being made to turn upon the whole problem of the present condition of the world and our most uncertain future. We are in an age of transition, an age of change, an age of crisis. And indeed, we can go further and say that thinking people, whether they're Christians or not, are in increasing numbers using a phrase such as this about the end of the world, the possible destruction of the world itself and all its peoples. It is because of that, I say, we are looking together at this great chapter in which our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ himself deals with and treats of this very matter. We are all, apart from what he tells us here, bewildered. Philosophy can't understand the present hour. The politicians don't understand it. Isn't it becoming more and more obvious that man left to himself is quite bewildered. He doesn't understand it. The facile prophecies of a hundred years ago, have all been falsified. And everything that we'd been promised for this particular present century has not been fulfilled. The world is in a terrible and in an alarming condition. What can be more important, therefore, than that we should consider what our Lord himself had to say about this very matter. Here he is. He's just left the temple for the last time. And as he was leaving, he prophesied that that uh, temple was going to be destroyed and also the city of Jerusalem itself. And his disciples, his followers, are baffled at this and they don't understand it. Those temple buildings seem so durable, so solid. They look as if they'd been built for eternity. And they say, what is all this? What do you mean? And he assures them that it's going to be destroyed so completely that one stone will not be left upon another. And they're astounded at all this. And they say, well, what, what is all this? What, what, what are these things about which you're speaking? Tell us, when shall these things be? And what shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world? And our Lord proceeds to deal with their questions. Now let me summarize it. It's so essential that we should keep this firmly in our minds. What he proceeded to say was roughly this. 
that the world is going to be destroyed. The city of Jerusalem is a picture of the whole world and its peoples, sinful, rebellious against God. It and all its systems and all its glory are going to be destroyed. That's his plain and perfectly clear teaching. He didn't only give it here, he's given it elsewhere. He holds out no hope whatsoever for the world as such, the world as it is estranged from God. His prophecy is one of trouble, discord, wars and rumors of wars, earthquakes, pestilences, troubles, men's hearts failing them. That's his prophecy. He says these are but the beginning of sorrows. Things will get worse and worse. And ultimately it will all end in a final calamity when the world shall be judged and destroyed and punished and all who belong to it. Now there is no question about that. And anybody who tries to represent the Christian gospel as, as being anything different from that, I think we've demonstrated abundantly, is simply twisting the gospel, ignoring its obvious teaching, and is imposing his own thoughts and wishes and desires and political theories upon the plain teaching of the Son of God. Very well, there it is. But you see, if that is all that our Lord had said, we wouldn't be meeting together like this this evening. If that is the whole truth, there would never have been such a thing as the Christian church. But we are here in the Christian church this evening. And why are we here? Ah, now then, that's the very thing that we are told of in this 14th verse. In the middle of this gloomy prophecy, indeed in the midst of this devastating prophecy of his with regard to the future history of the world, our Lord makes this statement. And this is the thing that brings us together and accounts, I say, for the whole of the Christian church. This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations. And then shall the end come. In other words, we began to consider this last Sunday evening, and this is what we found. That our Lord is teaching that there is one and one only possible way of escape. That's what the gospel of the kingdom is. There is no hope for the world. And people who give their time and thought and energy to trying to deliver this world from the certain doom that is coming upon it are of all people the greatest fools. Before they start, they're doomed to failure. The whole history of civilization is the history of men trying to make his world perfect. But surely we must be able to see by tonight that it is as imperfect as it, as it has ever been. What are the tangible results of all the efforts of civilization? Here we are in our present position. No, no, there is no hope that way. There is only one hope, and that is that we somehow escape from that world and our involvement in its doom and disaster. That is exactly the message concerning this kingdom. We pointed out that God is forming another kingdom, separate from the world. And in this kingdom, the people who belong to this are going to be saved, they're going to be spared. 
When the final doom and disaster come, they'll not be involved in it. They will be safe because they are citizens of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of Christ. That's the message, that's the good news of the kingdom. This gospel of this kingdom, there is a way out, there's a way of escape. If we're only in that kingdom, well then we can face what is coming without fear and without terror and alarm. Now then, that being the message, the question that obviously arises at once in our minds should be this. How can I enter that kingdom? How can I become a citizen of this kingdom that shall never be moved? How can I belong to these people who are the people of God? We traced them, didn't we, in the Old Testament last Sunday night? We saw them in the New we see that throughout the history there has always been these two divisions, those who belong to the world and its way, those who belong to God and his way, those great men that are figured in Hebrews 11, those men who realized that they were but strangers and pilgrims in this world, who had got their eye on a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God, and who esteemed the riches of Egypt, like Moses, as but nothing. They had their eye on the recompense of the reward. And they preferred to suffer shame with the people of God rather than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. Now there has been that great division. There is this other kingdom. This kingdom that includes God's people and who are never going to be destroyed. They've escaped out of the other. Well, yes, I say, but here's the question then. How does one make this escape? How does one enter the kingdom of God? Now, my dear friend, that's the biggest question that you'll ever face. It's the biggest question any man can ever face. It's the most momentous question. It is the most urgent question, the most pressing question. And as our life in this world becomes more and more uncertain, should anything occupy our attention at all until this is settled, Oh, I can't tell you what's going to happen about Berlin. Nobody else can. And if I addressed you on that subject and on the visit of Mr. Macmillan to Russia, I wouldn't help you in the slightest. It would all be speculation. I don't know. If I talked to you about these bombs and how to stop war, I'd be wasting my breath. I'd be wasting your time. Nobody pay any attention to it. Nobody knows. But here is this certain fact that there is going to be an end to this world. But apart from that, we've all got to die. And we don't know when we're going to die. And we don't know when we've got to stand before God in the judgment. I therefore say that there is only one question that matters. It is this. How can I enter this kingdom of God and of heaven? How can I get into this kingdom which is safe and which can never be touched by anything that man or hell can do? How can I pass from judgment into life and know that when the great day comes, I shall be amongst God's people with nothing to fear? That's the question. And that, of course, is the very question with which this gospel of the kingdom deals. Oh, what a blessed verse this is. It's the only flash of light in the gloom. It was then the only flash of light as our Lord spoke. It's been the only light ever since in the running centuries. It's the only light in this world this evening. If I believe that my future 
was inextricably bound up with that of the world as I see it and as we all know it. Well, I say I should be filled with despair. What can I do? But here comes this blessed offer. This wonderful picture of life in the kingdom of God. How can I belong to it? Very well, I say, that's the question. Let's proceed to consider the answer to the question. Obviously, the first thing that we must discover is this. What is the nature of this kingdom? What sort of people belong to this kingdom? That's the question you ask, isn't it? If you are going, uh, proposing to go into any kind of new society to which you've never belonged before, somebody comes to you and gives you an invitation. Come with me, says this person, to a meeting. Tomorrow evening or the next night, doesn't matter which night. Come with me to a certain society. Come with me to a meeting of a certain club, says this person. And immediately you ask and rightly ask the question, well, tell me, what sort of a club is this? What sort of a society is it? What sort of people belong to it? Does one have to dress in a special manner in order to come to your meeting? Are there any rules or regulations? What you do when you get there? What you talk about? Tell me something about these people. A very good question, isn't it? If you visit a foreign country, immediately those are the questions you ask. You do that, I say, with any circle or with any society that may be under consideration. And when you come to consider this kingdom of God, well, you must ask exactly the same questions. Kingdom of God? A way of escape? How do I enter it? Well, I want to know what's it like. What happens inside it? What are the people like who belong to it? Well, there's no difficulty about answering the question. In a way, you know, that the answer to that question constitutes the whole of the Bible. That's what it's concerned about. In the Old Testament, as well as in the New. And I just want to remind you of the character of this kingdom, of the character of the people who belong to the kingdom. I'll go further. I'm going to tell you this evening what's got to be true about you and myself before we can belong to this kingdom. Like every other kingdom, this kingdom has its laws, its rules, its regulations, its system. And you don't enter into this kingdom more than any other kingdom on your own terms and in your own way. You've got to enter it as it is, not as you are. Very well, let's consider what we find here. I say the answer is given in the Old Testament as well as in the New. Because, as we saw so clearly last Sunday night, there were people under the Old Testament dispensation who belonged to this kingdom. Abraham belonged to it, Isaac, Jacob, Abel before them. Ah, these are the people, the children of Israel, God's people in God's kingdom. To them all the promises are made. And everybody who has become a citizen of this kingdom ever since is just joined to those people. That was the thing that used to thrill the Apostle Paul. That the Gentiles now have the possibility of becoming fellow heirs and fellow citizens with the saints in this kingdom of God. Kingdom of God didn't start in the New Testament. It was there in the Old Testament. And there you are told something about its laws and its rules and regulations and the character of the people who belong to it. And what are we told? Well, I mustn't keep you. Here's the first answer. The Ten Commandments. You see, when God gave the Ten Commandments, 
What he was really doing was to tell these children of Israel whom he'd adopted as his people the kind of people they were to be because they were his people. So he begin, began to announce to them the character of the kingdom and obviously he starts by telling them about himself. Oh, I do plead with you to go home and read the 20th chapter of the book of Exodus. And God spake all these words, saying, I am the Lord thy God, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. He is to be your only God. You are to live for him. You are to give yourself to him. He is the ruler. He is the king. And he will tolerate no other gods. And there are no rebels in his kingdom. You can't belong to his kingdom and set yourself up as a god. And go your own way. You can't belong to his kingdom and set anybody or anything else up as a god. He won't have it. Then we are told we must make no graven image or likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath. We shall not bow down to any of them nor serve them. He tells us that he is a jealous God. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. We are told that we must not take the name of the Lord our God in vain for the Lord will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. And you hear people on the street saying, my God, taking the name of God in vain. People who belong to his kingdom don't do that. Then we are told that we must keep his day. And then you remember the various other instructions. Honor thy father and mother. Thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife nor his manservant, nor his maidservant, nor his ox, nor his ass, nor anything that is thy neighbor's. Ten commandments, rules and regulations of the kingdom of God. There it is. And then you go on and you read the teaching of the great prophets of the Old Testament. And what did they teach? Well, they were just always applying this law, reminding the people of the holiness of God the righteousness of his kingdom. Of course, they're bound to do this. You have no choice in this matter. It is God's kingdom. It is the kingdom of heaven. And that is the kingdom in which God rules and reigns. And you're in the presence of God. And God cannot tolerate evil. He's of such a pure countenance that he cannot even look upon sin. He hates sin. He abominates it. It's entirely opposed to him. So the moment you think of entering into this kingdom, you don't begin to think of how you're going to enjoy yourself or what you're going to do. You begin to think of being in the presence of this living, holy, righteous, pure and just God. It's his kingdom. You have to meet him. You have to go before him. 
You are under his rule, under his power and authority and under his dominion. That's how it starts. And I say these great prophets, they preached that. Oh, these children of Israel even began to develop wrong ideas. And they thought that they could go on sinning. And as long as they took God an occasional burnt offering and sacrifice, that all was, would be well. No, no, says the prophet. Hath the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice. That's their message, every one of them. They remind the people of the holiness of God and therefore the holy character which they should have. That they're different from these other nations. Ah, but the children of Israel didn't like that. They kept on coming and saying, these other nations, they're allowed to do this, that and the other. Why can't we do these things? And the only answer that was ever given to them was this, you are not to do these things because you're not like them. You are God's people. And God said, be ye holy for I am holy. Now, those are the rules and regulations that we read and in the Old Testament scriptures. And then you come along and you find a man called John the Baptist. Suddenly, after 400 years, when there had been no prophet at all in Israel, there comes this astounding man called John the Baptist. He spends most of his time out in a wilderness. He dresses in an odd way. Camel hair shirt, leathern girdle about his lines, doesn't eat as other people eat. He ate nothing but locusts and wild honey. And he began to preach and he called the people to repentance. He says, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And they went crowding out to him. And they said, what do you mean? They'd never heard a man like this before. Strange to look at, stranger still, in his preaching, which was torrential and alarming and convicting. They looked at this blazing man of God and they said, what then have we got to do? And John looked at them and said, He that hath two coats, let him impart to him that hath none, and he that hath meat, let him do likewise. And then the publicans came to him and said, And what shall we do? And he said, Exact no more than that which is appointed you. And then the soldiers came and said, And what shall we do? And he said, Do violence to no men, and be content with your wages. And they looked at one another, and we are told that as all men mused in their heart concerning John as to whether he were the Christ or not, John turned to them and said, I indeed baptize you with water, but one mightier than I cometh, the latchet of whose shoes I am unworthy to unloose. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire, whose fan is in his hand, and he shall truly purge his floor and gather his wheat into the garner, but the chaff he will burn with fire unquenchable. There is again an indication, you see. They ask the question, well, how do we enter this kingdom? Those are the rules and regulations. That's the kind of person that comes in here, says John the Baptist, with his understanding, and he's only the forerunner. And then we come to this person about whom John was speaking. Jesus of Nazareth. And he begins to preach and says the same thing. He says, repent, for the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What is this kingdom of heaven? How does one enter it? What are the characteristics of the kingdom? What are the people like? What are the rules and regulations? Well, I've read the answer to you. He gave it, you see, in the Sermon on the Mount. 
the sermon on the mount, corresponds in a sense to the Ten Commandments in the old form of the kingdom in the Old Testament. Here is the new form of the kingdom. He says, these are the characteristics of my kingdom and of the people who belong to this kingdom. Did you remember them? Do you notice them? Blessed are the poor in spirit. What does that mean? Well, it means blessed are those people who think nothing at all of themselves. Who far from thinking that they're wonderful and full of a bouncing self-confidence and who've adopted the modern psychology which teaches believe in yourself, evaluate yourself highly, you're wonderful, you're a 20th century man. Blessed are they that are poor in spirit who feel that they can't trust themselves because there's nothing to trust, who feel that they're hopeless. Then he follows it, you remember. Blessed are they that mourn. What are they mourning about? Because somebody is dead. No, no. You needn't say that about natural people. They do that instinctively. He means blessed are they who mourn because of their sins. They're unhappy because they're unclean. How they don't gloat and rejoice in the way of the world and the things the world does and think it's marvelous. And a drunken man is a great joke and the hands are clapped as jokes are made about sex. No, no, it makes them mourn to think that they can enjoy a thing like that or that it should ever please them or anybody else. They're unhappy, they're miserable because of it. They say, oh, wretched men that I am, who shall deliver me and take this kind of thing out of me? Blessed are they that mourn. That's the sort of people you've got in this kingdom. Blessed are the meek. The meek? Who are they? What sort of people are the meek? Well, it's very essential we should ask the question today because it's almost disappeared out of our vocabulary, a part of disappearing out of our, out of our living. The meek? Not the man who pulls himself up to his full height and stature and who lets you know that he's arrived. The man who advertises himself and who has his photographs all over the place and you can't escape from them. No, no. He doesn't want to see himself. He has such a poor opinion of himself and all his abilities and all his attainment. It's modesty to the nth degree, if you like. A man who takes the back seat and who feels unworthy, not the man who pushes himself forward and who's fit for anything and everybody and brazen and goes through with it all. The meek. Blessed are they that do hunger and thirst after righteousness. Righteousness. Oh, to be true, to be straight, to be upright, to be pleasing in God's sight, to love his law and to live to honor it and to honor his great and holy name. Hunger and thirst after righteousness. Blessed are the peacemakers. The people who give themselves to making peace, who not only are not easily offended themselves, but who live in a sense to avoid offense and to remove offenses, and who give themselves to this Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And obviously nobody else can see God, because God is light and in him is no darkness at all. And unless our hearts are pure, how can we dwell with him? It's a contradiction in terms. We couldn't tolerate his kingdom. 
How can you live in a kingdom like this if you find your chiefest delight, you see, in the television and in the wireless and the cinema and the dancing and the drinking and all that panders to the flesh and the lust and the passions? Because this kingdom is absolutely different. It's altogether removed from that kind of thing. Well, that is how our Lord describes it, you remember. And then he goes on and says a thing like this. Except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no wise enter into the kingdom of heaven. Don't you depreciate the Pharisees and scribes, my friend. The Pharisee, after all, did fast twice in the week. He did give a tenth of his goods to feed the poor. I know he boasted about it and spoiled the whole thing as a result of doing so. But he did it, you know. What do you and I do, I wonder? The Pharisees were very concerned about worshipping God and pleasing him in their way. Except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. Ye shall in no wise enter into the kingdom of heaven. That's what he says about it. And it's he speaking. And go on to the end of the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 7 of Matthew's Gospel. It isn't enough, he says, to say, Lord, Lord, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. He says, the man alone who keeps my words, who heareth my commandments and doeth them, he's the man who enters into this kingdom. But listen to him as he goes on speaking. A lawyer came to him and tempted him one day and asked him about the commandments of the law. And our Lord spoke to him and told him what the commandments were. And the man agreed. He said, yes, this is quite right. I agree. To keep these commandments to honor God is much more than any burnt offering or sacrifice. You're quite right, Master, says this lawyer. And do you remember what our Lord said to him? He said, thou art not far from the kingdom of heaven. He isn't in it, you see. He's not far from it. He's got understanding. He can see that you can't die your way in, but that you've got to be right and live the right kind of... Thou art not far from the kingdom of heaven. That's what he said to him when he saw that he answered discreetly. And do you remember the case of the rich young ruler? This young man came running to him one afternoon, and he apparently was a beautiful young man. And he wanted to know what he'd got to do before he could enter this kingdom. And our Lord says, you know the commandments, honor thy father and mother, and so on. He gave him the second lot of those ten commandments, the second table in the last five. And the young man looked at him and said, all of these have I kept from my youth upwards. Is all well with me. No, said our Lord, sell all that thou hast and give to the poor. And come, take up thy cross, and follow me. And the young man went away sorrowful. And as he was walking away, our Lord turned to the disciples and he said, How hardly shall they that have riches enter into the kingdom of heaven? How hardly shall they that trust in riches enter into the kingdom of heaven? And the disciples utterly astounded at the failure of this excellent young man whom they probably knew, who was so moral, so good, so religious, and such a benefactor. They saw him going away sorrowful. He can't enter the kingdom. They turned to our Lord in amazement and said, Well, who then can be saved? Who then can be saved? 
And Jesus, looking upon them, saith, With men it is impossible, but not with God, for with God all things are possible. And then, do you remember that excellent man called Nicodemus, who came to our Lord one night? He's a master of Israel, and obviously a fine character. He had become interested in our Lord's preaching and attracted to him and moved by him, so he goes and seeks an interview. But it was, you remember, to him that our Lord turned and said, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born again, he cannot see, he cannot even see the kingdom of God, leave alone enter it. And Nicodemus was nonplussed and taken aback. And he said, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Our Lord replies, verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of heaven. Ye must be born again, he says. And he goes on repeating it. Suddenly one day the disciples themselves asked him a question. And they said, who is chiefest in this kingdom of God about which you are talking so much? And our Lord took a little child and put the child in the midst of the circle. And he said, except ye be converted and become as little children, ye shall in no wise enter into the kingdom of heaven. And the other day, you remember, he was preaching, and the women would brought their children in arms that our Lord might touch them and bless them. And the disciples rebuked the women and told them to go away. No, no, says our Lord, don't do that. Suffer the little children to come unto me and forbid them not. Why? Well, of such, this kind of person, as it were, of such is the kingdom of God. There, my dear friends, are the answers that are given concerning this kingdom. Let me give you the final one out of the book of Revelation, where I read this. Not that defileth shall enter into the kingdom outside of dogs and adulterers and murderers and fornicators and all that work everything that is unclean outside. Not that defileth shall enter in. There are no scavengers in the kingdom of God. There's no need for them. There's nothing unclean. There's no refuse there. There's nothing vile there. Only those who, uh, who conform to this picture are admitted into this kingdom. There is the king, God, the king universal himself. And this is the character of the citizens and the people who belong to the kingdom. Am I making my meaning clear to you, my friend? I say that there is only one way of escaping the destruction and the doom that is coming upon the world, and it is to belong to this kingdom of God and of heaven. How can I enter it? Well, that's the answer. That's the sort of people who are in. How can I get in? Are you poor in spirit? Do you mourn because of your sins? Are you merciful? Are you hungering and thirsting after righteousness? Are you peacemakers? Are your hearts clean? 
Ah, you like a little child, so conscious of your failure, your unworthiness, your impotence, your nothingness, that you feel you're as helpless as a newborn babe, as helpless as the infants the women carried in their arms. Have you got a nature corresponding to God and to the kingdom in which he rules and reigns? That's the question. And the moment I put the question, the answer is inevitable, isn't it? Not one of us conforms to this description. We have all sinned and come short of the glory of God. The natural man doesn't conform to the Beatitudes. He doesn't keep even the Ten Commandments. Our Lord gives his exposition of those Ten Commandments in that Sermon on the Mount. And you remember what he says. He says it isn't enough that you don't commit the act. You mustn't think of it. To look at a woman to lust is already to commit adultery in your heart. It's your desire that matters, not only your deed. Your motive is as bad as your act itself. God is interested in the thoughts and the hearts and the wishes and the desires as much as he is interested in the actions. He probes to the depths, and we are as an open book before him. Those are the conditions. There is the standard. Is there any hope for us? Can we ever enter in? Don't you see that the first thing we need is obviously forgiveness? We've sinned against God. We've worshipped ourselves We've worshipped our own abilities. We've worshipped our own money. We've worshipped our profession and our standing in it. We've worshipped our possessions. We've lived for them. We've worshipped our own children. We've worshipped one another. These are the things that we've worshipped. God's law has spoken and we've said not a bit of it. That's old Victorianism. That's morality. I want to do these things and I've done them. We've defied him. We've sinned against him. We've rebelled against him. And before anybody can enter that kingdom, we must be forgiven. We must be pardoned. But even that isn't enough to be pardoned doesn't put me into that kingdom. I need, obviously, a new nature. I must be a new man. The Lord Jesus Christ is right when he says, you must be born again. How can a man who lives in the world and enjoys it possibly tolerate that kingdom? You know, that kingdom would be hell to him. He'd be miserable there. He'd be wretched there. Cut off from all he likes. Hating the very things that happened there. How could he stand it and tolerate it? Before you can enter that kingdom, you need a new nature. A new outlook, a new desire, a new heart. And before we can go on living in it, we need new strength and power and some sort of dynamic which we lack at the present time. We must have them or we can never enter in. What can we do about it? Oh, it's no use trying to fit yourself for it. You try to make yourself feel like a little child and you'll see how impossible it is. Try to make yourself feel meek and merciful. Try to hunger and thirst after righteousness. You can't do it. You can't metamorphosize yourself. It's impossible. What can we do, therefore? Is there any hope for us? Can anybody ever enter into this kingdom of God, this kingdom of heaven? And the answer, blessed be the name of God, is yes. 
There are thousands in it. There are millions in it. There are yet myriads going into it. How is it possible? How can it be done? How has it ever been done? And the one answer to all these questions is this. It is to look at the king of the kingdom. Who is he? He alone has the right of admission. Who is this king who can admit me into the kingdom? Well, the answer is, he's the very one who uttered the words that we're looking at. Listen, this gospel of the kingdom, he says, shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations. And then shall the end come. This man who's speaking, this Jesus of Nazareth, who's just come out of the temple and who's sitting on the side of the mountain, looking over at the temple, speaking to his own followers. He is the king. How do I know that? Well, I know it like this. I see my Old Testament. It's all pointing forward to him. The promises are about this person. Genesis 3.15, seed of the woman shall bruise the serpent's head. The Shiloh that is to come, the promised Messiah, the son of David, the one out of the tribe of Judah, all is looking forward to him. They say there's a great deliverer coming. There's a marvelous Messiah who was sometime going to enter into the world. There is need of a redeemer and he's coming. And then I listen again to John the Baptist. And John the Baptist, hearing the people overhearing them, thinking and saying in their hearts, whether he were the Christ or not, says, No, no. I indeed baptize you with water, but there cometh one after me, mightier than myself, the latchet of whose shoes I am unworthy to unloose. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. He must increase, I must decrease. I'm not the bridegroom. I'm only the attendant, the friend of the bridegroom. The bridegroom is coming. He's at the very door. Go to him. He points to him. And then comes this very person himself. This Jesus of Nazareth. Who is he? Well, you know, he tells us all about himself in a sense in this very verse we are looking at. Have you ever considered this? Listen, this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations. Who's saying this? Who is this who looks across the centuries and who says that the gospel of the kingdom, which he has been preaching, and which he sent these men out to preach, is going to be preached in all nations to all people. Who is he? Well, he's, he's only a carpenter. Brought up in Nazareth, working as a carpenter. Son of Joseph and Mary, carpenter. And yet he makes this statement. Ah, oh, but wait a minute, there's something still more wonderful about this. At the very moment he makes this statement, he is about to be rejected. He is about to be condemned as a common felon. He is about to be crucified and nailed upon a tree. He's about to die and to be buried. 
Yet here he is, this carpenter, this nonentity, rejected to be crucified, to die. He says, the gospel of my kingdom is going to be preached. Who is he, I ask? Well, he's a Jew. A little nation. A contemptible little nation. Just a little plot of land, as it were. In the midst of great empires, and at that particular time when he spoke, very despised and very low indeed, had been conquered by the Roman Empire, and was not even worthy of the status of a colony, a sort of protectorate. And here he is, a Jew, belonging to such a people, and a carpenter, I say, and on the verge of rejection and crucifixion and death. And he stands up and he says, the gospel of my kingdom shall be preached in all the world and to every nation. Who is this? There are only two possible alternatives. He's either a megalomaniac, a lunatic, or else he is the Son of God. And he is the Son of God. What he prophesied has come to pass. The rejected carpenter was preached throughout the Roman Empire and within three centuries the great Roman Empire became Christian in name at any rate. What he prophesied came to pass. The Jew, the carpenter, the one condemned in utter weakness upon a cross he prophesied that he and his gospel would be preached, and he was preached, and he has been preached, and it spread throughout the Roman Empire. And it has spread throughout the whole world, in spite of opposition and enmity and malignity of men and of hell, in spite of all efforts to exterminate it. It's gone on and on and on, and it's going on, and it will go on, and nothing can stop it. There is only one who could make such a prophecy. And that is obviously the Lord of history. And he is the Lord of history. He is the focus of this kingdom of God. He alone can admit into it. And he is ready to do so in his own way and on his own terms. And let me repeat them to you before I close. God willing, I hope to show you why they are inevitably the, the, the conditions and why they must be the conditions next Sunday night. But here they are. There is only one way of entering that kingdom. It is to repent. As you realize the holiness of God and your own vileness and your own sinfulness and your own rebelliousness and your own unworthiness, as you contrast yourself with the men in the kingdom and see the truth, you repent. You turn to God and you say that you realize you've been a fool, that you didn't know him and that you've defied him and that you've worshipped other gods rather than he, that you've broken all his laws and that you deserve hell. You realize it, you acknowledge it, you confess Repent, and then believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe that this Jesus of Nazareth is one who came out of the blood of the Jews according to the flesh, 
is none other than the eternal Son of God, who's come into this world in order to open the door of the kingdom. Nobody else can open it, but he can. How does he do it? How does he do it? He deals with my guilt. He deals with my sin. He's born it. He's born his punishment. He blots it out. And he clothes me with the robe of his own perfect righteousness, his own holiness, his own perfect obedience to God. And clad in his spotless robe of righteousness, with my sins forgiven, I can enter in and know that God receives me, will bless me, will adopt me into his family, and that I belong to him forever and forever. I expect nothing but what I get in the world. Shame and sin and wars and rumors of wars and evil abroad and increasing, especially towards the end. I'm not surprised. I expect it, but it doesn't touch me. I'm in this other kingdom. I fail. I'm not perfect. I'm still sinful. But I'm in the kingdom. I'm covered by Christ. And when the final judgment comes and the ultimate separation of men and women into the two groups, the two camps, is announced and promulgated, I say to his blessed glory, I shall be amongst those who shine out in the glory of his kingdom. The king alone can admit. And he admits those who have indeed become as little children, realizing their helplessness, their utter weakness, their complete hopelessness spiritually, have come to him and cast themselves upon his love and mercy and compassion and have allowed him to take hold of them, to make them anew and to lift them up and to put them in the kingdom. Repent! And believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And thou shalt be saved. Amen.